0: This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. The news on climate change is bleak, but can it be taught? Our teachers say increasingly they feel like they don't have a choice. Plus, libraries are changing. It's no longer just about checking out books. Though at our teachers' schools, you may be surprised how many kids still do that. And a teenager got put on blast on social media for peppering her speech with the word like, why our teachers say such verbal filler is and is not a big deal. Those topics and an Old Town Road edition of Kids These Days on this episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I used to be in the classroom as an English teacher. Now I'm behind the mic as a radio journalist. I'm joined, as always, by a group of still hardworking teachers who are not done with the school year just yet. They are ready to share some thoughts that are on their mind today. So let's introduce them. Maddie Burkemper, what do you teach?
1: Hi, I teach third grade
0: third grade.
1: All (laughs) all of it.
0: (laughs) Lynn Shipley, what do you teach?
1: Uh, I
2: am an instructional coach, but I taught uh, computers in middle school.
0: And Jason Staliga,
3: what do you teach? High school chemistry.
0: So Maddie, Lynn, and Jason are all three educators in the Kansas City metro area. And as I said, sorry guys, all three of you still in school as we speak, though a couple of you will be done by the end of this week, by the time that this podcast drops in our feed. Can't wait for it to...
1: Rubbing <laughs> it
2: in. <laughs> hey,
0: hey I, some of us don't get a summer break. Thank you, Kyle. So, <laughs> I <knew. laughs> so Hey, some of us have to work jobs 12 months out of the year. Wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's going down It's going down that way already. Oh, that's good. We don't All
1: get paid when we're on summer break, though. I like to say that. I have to voluntarily I mean, do, ask... So my district to withhold my regular paycheck to pay me over the summer. So, I don't work. That means you get paid a little
0: bit more during the school year, right? Less. If you don't don't space it out. Or you want want your paycheck over the summer. You get your
1: salary and then you have to choose, would you like all of your salary on the months you work or would you like to not have all of your salary and then get that in like a little mini savings. Yeah. So, uh, the whole, I work 12 months a year bit. It doesn't work on me. It doesn't work on you. Nope. No.
0: Well, understandably so.
1: And we're in PD over the summer, so... Ha! Feel free to edit this out. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Uh, Well, you speak of summer. The weather's getting warmer. Fittingly, our first topic, climate change. The news about our changing environment is, I shall say, increasingly grim. A report this past fall by the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change made the case that we could start seeing... Some catastrophic consequences of global warming as soon as the year 2040. Things like worsening food shortages, intensifying wildfires, and mass die-offs of coral. Another UN report earlier this year concluded human activity is responsible for putting some 1 million plant and animal species on the path to extinction in the near future. Another recent report published by researchers at Cornell University says by the end of this century, some 2 billion, that's billion with a B people, that's one-fifth of the world's predicted population, will be made refugees by rising sea levels. Well, teachers like to say children are our future, but will our children have a future? How do teachers and schools approach what can be a bleak topic of climate change? And is there added urgency now as we consider that our students are the ones who will bear the brunt of whatever environmental calamity could unfold in the coming decades? So that's a lot to take in. Um, I wonder, first of all, and I will say, just to be transparent, I wanted to save this for a day when we had Jason, who is a science teacher. Um, but do any of you, I mean Jason included, do you explicitly teach about climate change in your class or does it come up? Um, if so, how? How do you
3: teach it? How does it come up? It comes up every day almost. Really? Really. Wow. Uh, there's, I have one class that is just very focused on climate change. A lot of, uh, a lot of supporters and ardent advocates for what we need to do for the environment and then a couple of naysayers and they they sit in the back of the room this is kind of my approach to it actually and they actually debate it and they talk about it and they, they talk about the the effects of the ocean and the dying of the coral reefs they talk about the warming of the of the earth the the impact that it's going to have on glaciers melting and then and then their kids who are like well it's fake and then it isn't real <clears throat> and so I, I sit there and I just kind of I kind of, in, in many ways, just moderate the conversation. Have, have a minor heart
1: attack. No, because it, it's, it's
3: fascinating because a lot of the, the naysayers is simply based on what they hear from the news or what they hear from their leaders that are in their communities. And, uh, and so they, they kind of take that and they absorb it. And like as a scientist, my whole approach has always been, well, let's discuss research. Let's look at examples of of what's happening with the world. Let's look at trends. And then let's dissect, you know, what your what your thoughts are in regards to climate change. So you're saying change. like the, it comes up even when like maybe climate change is not part of the explicit lesson. No. Like kids want to talk we're about were talk, what you're saying. Well, we were talking about nuclear energy. So I can uh-huh. see how that may have been a segue into climate change. But, I mean, it's happened when we've been balancing chemical equations. It's really when kids have work time that they actually start having actual – conversations in regards to topics of society, and one of them happens to be climate change. And it's,
0: so it sounds like there's a segment of your students who are really mindful of it. Seems like they've been doing a lot of like outside reading, know a lot about... Um, different aspects of our changing climate beyond mm-hmm. what you've taught them or what they've been taught in school. It seems that like they've been doing a lot of independent research into this. Are they worried about it? I mean, are they, is it something that like makes them anxious and makes them worried about their futures? Or is that
3: the wrong, wrong way to, to characterize it? I think they're really concerned about how they can improve the world that is around them locally. Lynn, Maddie, you're
0: not high school science teacher, so this might be a little bit more in Jason's wheelhouse. But even if you don't teach science per se, but I think, Maddie, you do teach some science because you teach uh, an all-inclusive classroom. Do you also tackle matters of climate change, or do you see other teachers in your school tackling matters of climate change? And and if not, like, how do you wish your school went about it?
1: Mm, For me, climate change and curriculum, it, like, falls into the category of this should be in the curriculum, but it's not in the curriculum, so you have to Listen to students when they talk and ask questions, and then when you see an opening, then you can draw that piece in. And obviously sometimes when I'm teaching science class, like we talked about weather patterns. That was a unit that we had. There was another unit about like layers of the earth and fossils Mm -hmm. and earth changing over time. The curriculum doesn't explicitly talk about it, but... I mean, science is all about patterns, a big chunk of it, you know? And so when we talk about patterns and shifting patterns and climate change, kids are like, is that like... I mean, they they don't have, like, enough schema, really, to have a conversation explicitly about it. And so I kind of see my purpose as helping them build schema, so that way when they get to Jason or when they get to Lynn in middle school and in high school, they're ready to Mm. talk about it. So we practice having... Disagreements with each other. We talk about having evidence to support your claims in science a lot. And then we talk a lot about weather patterns that we're seeing and how that can make life easier or harder and what you can do.
0: Uh, Lynn, you're an instructional coach, so you have a, a broader eye view of your school than just a single classroom. Do you see teachers ever bringing this up or talking about it or teaching about it in your school?
2: Actually, I do. One of the things middle school should do is bridge the curriculum between elementary and high school. And so you start making real-world connections at that level. This year, because of the snowstorms, this spring, because of the flooding and the rain, we have been able to introduce the concept, not even the concept, the ideal of climate change to our students. And they're doing a little bit more talking about it. Also, there is a unit in our science that does talk about the earth's atmosphere, weather changes, cloud patterns, and we make sure that that is included in their curriculum so they can start having those discussions.
0: Uh, a lot has been made about the political divide over climate change and how controversial of a topic it can be just based purely on ideological differences. In terms of teaching science, it often gets lumped in with things like evolution as one of those topics that can be very touchy. But, in fact, a recent NPR Ipsos poll found that more than 80 percent of parents who were surveyed wanted their kids taught about climate change in school And those responses cut across party lines. More than 90 percent of Democrats or self-identified Democrats said they wanted climate change taught. And also nearly 70 percent of Republicans um, said that they wanted climate change taught to their kids. Um, So with that in mind, do schools have a growing responsibility or, again, I'll say that word urgency to teach climate change more than what they've been doing?
2: That's an interesting question because you're talking about public opinion driving curriculum. I'm not quite sure if... That is a reason why you should teach climate right, change. Yeah, uh-huh. But I, I do believe that climate change should be as we as you talked about the mass extinction of pets, of animals and of, of plants, that that should certainly be part of as, as being part of our curriculum.
0: Yeah. I mean, do you, uh, Jason, Maddie, I see you, you thinking about that idea. What are, is, do, do schools have a responsibility to teach climate change?
1: I'm just chewing on what Lynn said. I like how you like. I like how you cut to the core of that. You're like, it's a public opinion poll driving curriculum change, you know? And on one hand, yes, I do think that we should be teaching climate change. But on the other hand, using public opinion poll, I don't think that should be your drive for it. So even if in this instance I agree with the public opinion, mm-hmm. where he's like, it's, it's important to view a topic from all angles— And as educators, if there is a topic that's impacting our society heavily, it's our job to teach that topic Mm -hmm. and present that to students and expose them to it. I don't think that the correct answer is to just act like it's not an issue, you know, just as it would not be okay if you just were like, oh, I'm going to scrap evolution because it makes me uncomfortable like, you need to be able to present that idea to students and talk about it and facilitate a discourse. It's education's responsibility, not because people are experiencing anxiety, or, but more so because students are going to need to understand that topic in order to function in, in society. And a lot of them are going to have to understand that topic in order to interact with their future career or to make decisions. You know, to be a good voter, to be to be able to make an informed decision on what they do and don't believe about it or to make decisions about the things that they buy or the place where they live. I mean, I don't know.
3: I was thinking, is it a responsibility or a moral obligation?
1: And I would say it's a moral obligation, but that's how it is with all of the. I mean, you could say Mm -hmm. that any topic that's really important that's not in the curriculum, I would file into a moral obligation Mm -hmm. folder. You know, mm-hmm. like there are so many things that don't end up in the curriculum and we think, oh, it's not in the curriculum. Therefore, I can't teach it. I'm just going to leave it outside my curriculum. You know, I think over the mm-hmm. last
0: year or two, you know, what I mean? you know, over the last year or Lynn's, two.
1: Lynn's squinting at me. Go ahead, Lynn. I want to know why.
2: Uh, no, I, I was just. Uh, You're thinking. Uh, yeah, thinking about the term of moral obligation. Yeah. Uh, I, it, again, it goes to whose morals are we speaking to? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah.
0: Do you think climate change is one of those topics that is so big, so existential,
3: that, that it, it, it does create that moral obligation? I don't think I understood it until uh, 2008. I went on a global learning expedition to South Africa, and there were teenagers from across the world developing and giving research on looking at the impacts of climate change. And I didn't really think about desert for... Desert for uh, De-certification, De-certification yeah. I guess that's the word uh, I was thinking like the, the, the changing of the lands from More of an arid climate or A, um, a wet climate to an arid climate Looking at to changing into deserts And the impact that has on the economy And, and the ability of people to, to live and survive In a given area I didn't, I didn't understand it because I didn't see it And I didn't, understand, I didn't see it from their perspective And I didn't understand the passion behind it That, that it came across
0: And this was like a decade ago This was a decade yeah. ago,
3: yeah And then, you know, I look at it from uh, the perspective of an educator who probably have had very little training in the science of climate change. So unless you're really a science teacher or that you've really done a lot of research or you've done a lot of reading about it, like, how do you approach it? Right. right? Because you you look at it from just reading what you the words that are in front of you and you try to take that and then you articulate it in your own way to your students. But unless you have a full comprehension of what's happening to the world, it becomes really difficult for teachers to want to broach that subject, because I think a lot of times teachers are afraid to talk about that of what they do not know.
2: The the honest truth is that our children, the children that we teach now, are going to grow up in a vastly different world than what I grew up in. Yeah. Uh, we talk about the fact that Mount Ephraim is melting, and bodies are being discovered, and the sea levels are rising, and... You know, Greenland and is <laughs> defrosting and all of these things that are going to impact how we navigate this world, how how we how we create crops, how we how we farm, how we have food, how we distribute commerce. All of those things are going to be affected within the next 20, 30 years. And our children are going to be in the midst of it.
0: I take that point. Um, that also seems like such a a big idea. I, I wonder how you you apply that to you're teaching on a day-to-day basis or, you know, are you, you're going into classrooms looking at kids who, as you said, Lynn, by the time they're our age are going to be living in a, in a world that is very different or is changed by the ongoing environmental changes. Does that give you a a bigger sense of responsibility about uh, teaching about climate change and global warming or trying to broach it or trying to, as I mean, Jason said, if you're not a science teacher, maybe you don't know the science behind climate change, maybe trying to catch yourself up to speed about what what it is that's happening um, so that you can become more knowledgeable.
2: I, I, I'm going to agree with you. It is, it is extremely large, uh, but this is a different global environment. Social media has made our world much smaller. Uh, we are able to have conversations with people across the world instantaneously. And I think that we have to work on teaching our children how to have that conversation, how if we're going to make a change, then we have to teach them how to be leaders in making that change. And if this is something that is critical to our survival, we have to get that message across. Hmm. It can start with small things. Not everyone has to be invested to the point where they know all the technical terms. It could be just something talking about everyone's carbon footprint.
0: Another angle to this topic, you know, research published by the College Board in conjunction with several universities found that Higher temperatures, if we're talking about global warming, higher temperatures negatively affect standardized test scores, so student achievement. Uh, Namely, for every degree hotter, average temperatures were in a school in a given school year. Students' PSAT scores went down by the equivalent of roughly 1% of their learning that year. And we should say this effect had disproportionate impacts on low-income students and students of color who attend schools in hotter states in the American South and Southwest and also more frequently attend schools that are not as up-to-date in terms of infrastructure. Um, So that is also an aspect to this, uh, not just in terms of actually broaching the topic of climate change, but the fact that climate change's effects will disproportionately affect kids who are already marginalized. Why is it harder to learn in hotter temperatures? (laughs) Did you just have like, I mean, just that basic question out there.
1: I mean, your body's trying to regulate itself. And so I think a lot of your body's energy is being used for a purpose other than learning the information just trying at to stay hand. i mean it's yeah. hot it's hot. <laughs> have mean, you ever have you ever taught in, in
0: a, in a non-air-conditioned setting i went to yeah. non-air-conditioned schools <laughs> oh, yeah. k-12 yeah. and walked
3: uphill both ways doing it jason i know <laughs> <laughs> no my catholic schools didn't have air conditioning No, seriously no they're <laughs> yeah it was hot <laughs>
0: Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kaufman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. Do libraries still have a role in schools in our digital age? As schools more and more rely on one-to-one devices, iPads, and other digital technology to deliver learning, what should be the function and use of a school's library? If you're an advocate for libraries within education, there are some troubling trends. Take higher education. The Atlantic recently reported that college libraries are seeing precipitous declines in the rates at which books are being checked out. For instance, at the University of Virginia, a decade ago, students checked out nearly 240,000 books. Last year, they checked out 60,000. Meanwhile, there are problems at the K-12 level as well. Federal data show the number of K-12 public school librarians has dropped nearly 20% since the turn of the century. Yet, research suggests a strong correlation between having strong library programs and highly qualified librarians and higher student achievements. So... What should a school library be nowadays? For you three, how does a library at your school function? Do kids still get a use out of it? And if so, how? How is it used?
3: From my old school to my new school, the, the functionality is they have gone from being librarians to media center specialists. My current library is set up with large open collaborative spaces with flat screen TVs, Uh, and high-top tables where kids can plug plug their laptops in. (laughs) Right
1: now that's happening too. Yeah,
3: so that they have that capacity to project onto screen so they can have those overall discussions. Then we have private glass rooms with also flat-screen TVs that enable kids to have more small group settings. And so when I think of what a current high school library, to me now, has become more of a collaborative space where books are no longer the prominent feature, uh, where right now it's large open spaces and projectors. You, like you're saying, there's like fewer actual books in this. Well, library. there are ten thousand books in the library. No, well, you, so just, you just wouldn't know that there were ten thousand books in the library. And I, I kind of thought about today as I was on my porch swing reading. Oh <laughs> my <laughs> God! Look at this guy. Oh, wow. <laughs> 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 Wait
1: a minute. We're gonna go straight from like their glass. Yes.
3: Yeah, so well, meeting
1: th- rooms. <laughs> To, I was on my porch with yeah, there, sipping a se- my it's a coffee. It was a segue. Was it a pour over? Uh,
3: no, no, I'm not that fancy. Sorry. Uh, you're welcome. Uh. <laughs> Uh, thinking about all the articles we were reading and 20 years ago where would we have gotten those articles we'd have had to have gone to a destination most likely we would have had to print out the pdfs we would have had hard copies maybe having highlighters for me at least uh, when slides. i was in high school had slides had maybe slides yeah for sure that, that we wouldn't have been able to access information so quickly and so as i read when i was thinking about this i was as the functionality of libraries go, you know there are so many e-books out there. There's so the many articles that are reading. Potential
1: dissemination of information is yeah. limitless.
3: Limitless. And, and, yeah. and to be clear, Jason, <laughs> this
0: the the library at your school that you're describing. It's still headed up by a librarian and I, an aide. Yeah. yeah. Okay, okay, full time. So there, there's still <laughs> a full <there's> time <laughs> both. Stuff, weeks? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Lynn, actually, a couple weeks ago or a few weeks ago, um, you on another topic mentioned your school's library, which in fact got me thinking about this larger topic. You talked about how a, Um, A project that some of your kids were doing—they they they completed. They had to use the library as a key resource. So, for Lynn, but for all of you as well. I mean, are your kids still using your libraries in like a traditional sense, like going there, doing research, looking up information?
2: A resounding yes. Yeah. I love the fact that our kids use the library. They come and check out books. We too have a media center specialist and an aide who are full time. But our kids come in and check out books. Our boys check out books. Our girls check out books. Uh, they come in and spend time reading in the morning and at lunchtime if want- they want to. Uh, teachers are consistently sending kids down to return books and check out new ones. In that vein, we also have uh, books on tape or e-books. We also have a computer lab where kids can do joint work or green screen set studio set up. And so we are really encouraging our students to read. Yeah, that is that is the biggest uh, one of the biggest uh, things that will help kids uh, uh, lessen this achievement gap.
0: So it sounds, uh, from what you described sounds a lot like what my vision, a, a, a traditional vision of what the library is used for, go there, check out books. Does, but it also sounds like that takes work on the staff's part to encourage kids to do that, to keep up with that, to keep kind of like motivating them to, to go and check out books and recheck out books and keep doing that?
2: Well, yeah. Well, you know, the fear with kids, you know, am I a geek? Am I a nerd? Does anyone want to see a book? But we've uh, really worked hard on making reading seem cool Mm -hmm. or making it seem part of the uh, maturation process. So yeah, our kids are not afraid to go in to have a sack full of books, to have books in their pocket. Uh, We have books that are decommissioned or declad, whatever, and we give them out to students. We have a full rack that when parents come in for various nights, they're encouraged to stop by the library, get some books to build their libraries oh, at home. Like so, like
0: to take home permanently. To take home permanently, oh, wow. yes.
2: So it's it's a, it's a a I, – I will say our librarian, our media specialist, uh, she is fantastic. We have a uh, small mini robots that kids can play with and program. We, we She's done a fantastic job of creating – a, a welcoming center for our students in that environment.
3: Yeah, and one uh, of my one of my best friends is a librarian, and she does a book club, and they partner Storer yes. yep. yeah, uh, store or both She Brit, used to be, be my yeah.
1: librarian, and um, then she left. Yeah.
3: and they they partner. <laughs> Shout out, lover. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they they partner with uh, Midcontinent as well as Kansas yes, City Public Library, and so she has like twenty to thirty kids a month who read the same book, and then they do breakout sessions with those books, and they sit down, and she brings in food for the kids, and and so she really does like advocate that, that sense of, you know, reading material, but then being able to discuss that material and really get into the, the heart and meat of it. So yeah. I think librarians do still, I, I hope I didn't paint that picture that it was just a collaborative space, but there are, I mean, I know librarians are out there, you know, really engaging students in learning and reading as well.
2: Talking uh, about this conversation, uh, one of my favorite political cartoons shows a public library and all of the shelves are empty and it has a Kindle leaning on one bookshelf. <laughs> what
1: cartoon is <laughs> it? I forgot what it was, like Gary Larson or something like, like yeah, that. But
0: what would it mean if your school did not have a librarian?
1: Oh. I think that would actually be cataclysmic for public schools. I don't know if, if everybody else would why? use that like, strong if, of a if word. If your
0: school did not have a librarian, why would it be cataclysmic?
1: Okay, well, let's look through the lens of climate change, right? We teach them all of this information. We teach them how to engage in public discourse. We teach them how to go through research and look for biases and present it to others and defend your point and yada, 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 yada. And then you spit them out into the world and they're living their life doing their job, where where might they go if they wanted to find more research on a topic about I don't know, real estate. Like if they're like, you know, like
0: they can't I, do those I, things in class. N-
1: no, as an adult, you no. need to you libraries are the hub like the political, social justice information hub of cities now. Like You go to our public library in Kansas City and it is swarming with activities and people and ways to get involved and social justice groups and debates and town halls and on and on and on. And so if you aren't exposing kids to libraries and how to navigate them and how to use all of their systems, books and beyond the books... Then so what? you're saying
0: you're, so if they don't have a if they don't have a library in their school, you're saying they would not be prepared to be well, active citizens when they get older? Is it, that if they I don't have
1: that? if they don't have a rock star teacher who is going to fight the fact that they don't have a library in their school, then then yes, like mm. if you're, I think it's important that yeah. kids understand how to interact with that public space of information and resources and on and on and on.
0: Oh, they're just gonna be you know on their raft of wax just out there floating around by themselves. While well, it's melting. <laughs> unless
1: climate change has already cracked through the bottom and has just destroyed their habitat. Yeah. yeah.
0: And yet over the past decade or so, as, as schools have struggled with their budgets post-recession, oftentimes um, full-time librarians, because you have to have a master's degree in order to do that oftentimes. So they are experienced employees who are often get paid more. They are the first people to be uh, cut oftentimes when, when schools and districts are struggling with their budgets. Um, I mentioned the, the 20% decline in full-time librarians in uh, K-12 schools over the last, uh, well, over the last 20 years or so since the turn of the century. Um, so, I mean, do you think librarians and their role and place in a school community
3: is respected? Um, do you think that they're often overlooked? I think it's an easy way to, to save money, I think, uh, for, for the central office. I think they look at a librarian and they go, well, if we can replace it with an aide, right, instead of having a full-time librarian, we can, you know, save $100,000 a year. In my old district, they went from having a librarian in every elementary school to having one, element, one librarian for elementary and then four aides in the building. And a lot of times those libraries were closed from day to day. And so kids didn't have access mm-hmm. to it every day. And that was a way for them to be able to save money um, to the detriment of the learning mm-hmm. of the child.
2: I think libraries also uh, add an extra place of safety for students.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, as a latchkey kid, I was dropped off to school uh, about an hour before school started. And the library was the place I went in order to uh, prepare for school every mm-hmm. morning it it is one of those places that you are, have kids at your school now, who do that? Yes, mm-hmm. yes, it's one of those places that it's a neutral ground, and uh, the librarian often plays more of a role. Uh, in addition to being a, <laughs> a book checker out, uh, outer, she uh, she helps facilitate conversations, provides a place for kids that might be considered outsiders to uh, have a home in the school. Yeah. Uh,
0: wrapping this conversation up, going all the way back to what Jason started us with, describing the library at his school as more of a collaborative space. Um, There are less there's less physical space devoted to storing books. And there is now, you know, planning rooms, uh, study desks, big open spaces where kids can gather and collaborate. Uh, Lynn, you also mentioned that um, the library at your school or a library at a school that you've been in um, has a has a has a maker space or has a, a, a place where kids can do some tinkering. Is the main function of school libraries changing is it not just no? Is it no longer just about giving kids access to physical books? Though, though you've all mentioned the fact that that's still very important.
2: I think it's expanding as, as technology, uh, the use of technology grows in schools. Uh, the librarian, the former librarian, now the media specialist, uh, is is in a place where she has expanded, she or he has expanded what they actually do with kids as regarding to uh, information and how it's disseminated. In how schools. so? Uh, She has to be knowledgeable in how to work with computers, how to show kids how to research on computers. Uh, She, like I said, uh, sends out all of the new equipment to teachers uh, to help them uh, navigate their technology better in the classrooms. Uh, She is a teacher. She's Apple certified. Uh, She has increased her knowledge regarding technology in the classrooms and passes that information on to teachers as well as to students. So she's expanded her role
0: yeah Jason, Maddie, the main function of the of the library changing in your opinion
1: yeah I mean I would I would echo everything that Lynn said um, and then I think that, that that question can also be answered by looking at like the larger public library and communities like li- I think for a while libraries haven't just been a place to only go to check out books. I think that that you know the bookworm and me like I hope I always hope that there will always be books on the shelves and that, you know, the political cartoon mentioned earlier won't come true 100 percent. You know, like there's nostalgia in the books and I like them. But like libraries have so many other programs and in, in, just in your public space. And so to me, it makes sense that that's being reflected in schools um, that it's not just a place to check out books anymore, but it's a place where you can learn um, different ways to research, interact with new technology, that the librarian would bring in that new technology and help teachers learn how to use it. It's, if that felt like a sloppy answer, mm-hmm. but I think that you <laughs> no. get what I was no. trying to say. And I
3: think the days. <laughs> a little off today. <laughs> Of the library being a place where you can hear a pin drop is over. Yeah, well, I, I, that's I, interesting. I, I do. I, that's
1: so. That's so beautifully put. That's what I was. I say that too. <laughs> Thank
3: you, <laughs> Matt. Just cut out whatever Maddie says. Matt, tonight. just get it. <laughs> it really. Well, Jason, what do you mean by that? <laughs> well, <clears throat> our library is open at six forty-five in the morning, and there are kids already in the library, and so they're 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 working in the morning already. There again, it goes back to that sense of collaboration. Um, I take my classes down there when we do like research roundtables and kids can talk and discuss. And I think back to when I was in college or when I was in high school and you walked in and it was just hush. And, it, and if you made a sound, it was a shh, like one of those moments. And it, the library doesn't feel that way anymore. Right. It, it feels as if this really is now a, another place of learning where communication is no longer frowned upon. Hmm. Good place to end. I thought you were going to say something
0: about ASMR. I
1: was, <laughs> actually, <laughs> actually, I'm not lying. I, I was going to try to. I do. should have whispered I that had That fantastic. No
0: <laughs> oh, good Lord. Good Lord. Right. We're going to limp, we're gonna limp <laughs> through one more. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to limp through one more second. There it is. Thank you, Mr. Bull. What do you think about library sling? <laughs> <laughs> We do have one final segment, I think, yeah. No, right. All right, to we're, we're, we're going to make it here. Well, one final segment. Uh, there was a minor social media explosion recently when David Martosco, he's a political reporter and editor for the British publication The Daily Mail, tweeted out his transcript of a 17-year-old girl's response to his question to her about what she thought of President Donald Trump's use. Of the racist slur Pocahontas to describe Democratic Senator and Presidential Candidate Elizabeth Warren. Uh, that particular topic is is not of concern for us, but here's what Martosco said was the girl's verbatim response at length. Again, he tweeted this out and I'll quote it. I think that it's really hypocritical, because not only is he making fun of someone for, like, something that she didn't really, like, say, um, but I do feel like he says so many, like, racial slurs against, like, Kyle, and she just, like, presents themselves to be, like, so, Kyle, like, negative th- towards, like, minorities okay. and stuff like that. That the fact that he is mocking her and calling her Pocahontas when he does nothing for Native American rights is really freaking dumb, end quote.
1: I don't even, I'm not even going to be upset if you have to re-record that. You know that's not how it sounded when she said it. That is I'm, exactly
2: how it says, I am she not said making it. fun no of her. That is, I am trying is. to read it in a neutral yes. voice. That is exactly how she said. It. Don't, don't spoil how she said oh it. Oh yeah. my God! Don't
0: spoil the conversation, Maddie. Here yeah. we go. So okay, the content, okay. Keep the going. content of her response aside, Martasco appeared to be mocking the teenager's frequent use of the word "like." Others quickly came to the unnamed girl's defense. The New Statesman magazine, for instance, called Martosco's tweet spectacularly unclassy. Many other journalists, notably female journalists, responded on Twitter pointing out Martosco's bad form and, frankly, unethical behavior as a journalist, putting a source like that on blast. The website, Dazed, had a slightly different take. The writer Bree Dawson there said this, quote, Martosco's tweet attempts to humiliate and undermine not only young people in political spheres, but young women, in particular, who are so often vilified for the way they use language, end quote. So I will say, as a teacher for a long time, the frequent use of the word like bugged me. I will say, I say it in my own speech, so I can't totally absolve myself. It's something that has crept into my own speech. But uh, we'll get into the larger, I guess, argument that was had after Martusco made that tweet. But do your students uh, say like a lot or some other verbal filler?
2: Of course they do. Yeah, okay. they're, 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 they're teenagers. Yes, of course they do. Um, and it is my job to uh, help them uh, delete that from their vocabulary, okay, so we might especially to... when they're speaking to me.
0: All right. So you, you, you are taking a firm stance that they need to delete it out of their speech. Why?
2: The truth is that I cannot speak for the population, the general population. I can speak for st- of color and people of color. Hmm. When we use terminology that um, (laughs) and I just use um, that causes people to question uh, whether or not we are intelligent, fillers like like, dude, all of those things cause people to to turn around and, and ask, do we really know what we're talking about? So
0: you see it as your, as you see it as your responsibility to try to have your students edit that out because you fear that they will not be taken seriously as young people of color if they have those verbal fillers in their speech.
2: I do, yeah. and and we do that because um, we're looked, and and I use um, we're looked at as being inferior as it is. Yeah. Uh, to add additional layer of verbs or statements that cause people to question that is is just another uh, bridge to overcome
3: Maddie, Jason maybe I don't listen to my students enough <laughs> 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 I, I just, you don't hear the filler words? I don't hear the word like a lot that's my point, yeah. I bet
1: that if you taped it and listened back to it that I, it would be on Friday. on Friday
3: there. I listened carefully uh, just to kind of here a little bit in my last two blocks and I, it did not come up very often. I know for me it's not the word, um, it's okay. Like I'll be teaching and I'll be like, yeah, we're going to go through this slide, okay, and then we'll be doing this and okay, and I and I don't even realize mm-hmm. it until in my head mentally I start to like count it. And it's like every, every time I try to segue to the next lesson or the next slide, I always end with okay. And so I just wonder if maybe it's not the word like, maybe it's the word, um that each individual has their own kind of filler uh, as they speak throughout the day, that that is just a par- becomes a part of their own vernacular.
0: Maddie, you seem to have strong opinions about this. I can tell. I'm, I'm
1: tallying the filler words we're doing in <laughs> this <we> segment <laughs> yeah. on this post-it <laughs> no. note that I'm oh. showing to Kyle right now in the booth for our <laughs> listeners. There's a sticky notepad by me, and I'm doing tally. Your marks. point
0: is everyone uses filler, verbal filler.
1: Yeah, everyone does, and I... I don't know. Like, as a white female, I...
0: You counted that one, right? I'm I'm getting (laughs) it. No, do
1: it. There's a column for me. I I know I have my filler words. As, As a white female, my privilege is that people don't as frequently question my intelligence because of my filler words as they would question the intelligence of a person of color. And the privilege of the white men is that they get to use filler words if they want them, and they get to use them if they don't want them, and people rarely, if ever, mm-hmm. question their intelligence right. due to their, their own filler words. Everyone has filler Hence words. Hence
0: a lot of the backlash against the journalist David Martosco and, for doing yeah. this. And, yeah. and
1: that's my issue. And if you read down on that tweet thread, the 17-year-old responded to him mm-hmm. with a clip of his own, and it's rampant with filler words. Mm-hmm. It has um, and he's giggling in it, and, and like, my... That, that was two, and, and, like. I said that. So that's three filler words in one sentence. Tell me up. Yep. Put on the sticky note. So is this?
2: So I'm, I'm looking at the filler word like being used from the Valley Girl days. That's what I'm right. thinking of it as. Not so much as it's a filler word, but it is a a symbol of Southern California that's been co opted to be used by other people. I don't mind filler words. My and 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 what he did to me was considerably wrong, especially to a young person. Uh, the idea that you can't use words that make you—they—they provide pause for you to continue your train of thought—is—is uh, is wrong. And but, like, is such a, a valley girl type mm-hmm. of word.
0: Well, so, in that same dazed article that I quoted earlier by Bree Dawson, she. Um, actually speaks with a linguistic researcher from Cardiff University in Wales named Mercedes Durham. And Mercedes Durham has studied the speech patterns of young people um, a lot and says every generation has their verbal filler of choice, like, um, as you point out, Lynn originated, um, at least traditionally, people think that it originated in Southern California back in the 1970s and 80s. Um, And that has gotten more popular in recent decades. But Durham says, and this is interesting, uh, and apropos to what Maddie was saying, Young females are often the first ones in a generation to adopt what she calls these linguistic innovations, these verbal fillers. And she says this may be the case because women in general are more sensitive to the dynamics of a conversation. They want to make sure that what they're saying is correct and they want to give the other person room to think. So verbal fillers are a sign that they are actually thinking hard about what they should say as opposed to what we often perceive things like like being signs of laziness or even vapidness. Um, (laughs) Say <laughs> um,
1: I don't know. Now my, now my brain is attacking my own point because, on the other hand, if we don't, because on one hand, what I said earlier is maybe how it should be thought, but on the other hand, there is a how it is reality to the world. And so, if I know that the females in my class or that the students of color in my class are at higher risk. For being discriminated against because of the way that they're speaking, and I just act like it's not a reality in my classroom, then how is that preparing them for those situations in which a female might be, or a student of color might be trying to apply for a certain job or interact in a certain space, and then they get trampled on because no one has said, hey, they these, are able the, to these, are the, these are the rules of the patriarchy that you're going to have to be aware of and navigate in order to obtain a job. You know, These are the rules of white spaces that you're going to have to navigate in order to gain access to resources or to something. So I don't know. It's hard because uh, it would be nice to be like, oh, that, that rule shouldn't be there. Or that prejudice shouldn't be there or that – Sexism or racism shouldn't be there. We should be able to allow people to use filler words because that's a linguistical norm. Linguistical? Linguistic? Which one is it? Linguistic. Thanks, Shipley. Um, you're the best. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that would be nice, but on the other hand...
0: well Lynn, you say that you know? actually you, you talk to your students about this or you have in the past. What are those conversations... Look like?
2: It's interesting. I I was talking with a former student of mine, she's 25 years old now. We were speaking of something, and she said, What what does Emma Shipley used to say? Accountable talk. Mm -hmm. So I work with my students in two veins. One, yes, we we have uh, conversations that are loosey goosey all the time. They can use filler words, they can say whatever, but we also translate that into so if you're presenting this, what would you say at that point? Hmm. So it's, it's a constant, I will never demean a student for their language uh, because that is their language. It does not mean they're not intelligent. It does mm-hmm. not mean that they cannot explain exactly what is taking place in their vernacular. What I do is help them expand that. I add to it by encouraging them to use other words that describe exactly what they want to say or what other people expect to hear in relationship to what they're saying. Hmm. so
0: Before we get to kids these days, let's tell you about some other education stories that caught our eye recently. It's time for the headlines. On the heels of Bernie Sanders releasing his education platform recently, which we talked about on the last episode, fellow Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden has unveiled his education plan. It would triple federal Title I funding a move Biden says would help close a funding gap between majority white and non-white schools. Biden's plan also would expand universal pre-K and raise teacher pay. Notably, however, Biden's proposal does not touch upon charter schools, something Sanders makes the centerpiece of his education agenda. Sanders proposes freezing federal funding for charter schools. Nearly 300,000 students in the U.S. attended a full-time virtual school last year. That's up slightly from the previous year, according to the Colorado-based group National Education Policy Center. In addition, another roughly 130,000 students are enrolled in so-called blended learning schools, which typically combine virtual and on-site learning. The NEPC says despite steady growth in their enrollment, virtual schools have shown relatively poor academic performance overall, and the group recommends enforcing sanctions for virtual schools that perform inadequately.
1: Do they wear, like, headsets? <laughs>
0: Virtual schools? Yeah. No, have you ever? I mean, have you ever? It's like you take all your classes online remotely.
1: Right, but is it like virtual school is just like they took online classes? Yeah,
0: basically. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's I di- there's like,
0: different definitions, different variations of it. But, what yeah. if you
1: saw a bunch of kids at the grocery store? They had like their their eye set or like their headset imprinted on their head because they've been wearing it for like the majority <laughs> of the day. What <laughs> like, do you oh, think? <laughs> oh, you go to one of those schools like that? Have, like.
0: I will say, I, when Goggle I lived in California, arts. I visited a school in San Francisco that was a physical school, but kids went there and that's all they did.
1: Is where virtual headsets?
0: Yeah, I mean, it, in, in, a, in a lot of ways, it looked, it looked like a call center in a lot of ways. Hmm.
1: Wow. There, so, like, there were no, there was like headsets, a, was, I mean like virtual reality. My oh, no, 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 no. VR, VR, no. No. VR no, 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 no.
0: I thought you were talking about no. like the. the,
1: thon- the yeah, the, the, ear, the, head,
0: the phone piece and everything.
1: So, no, you went to a call center school. CCS. I don't
0: think that's what they called it, but yeah. That's what we're (laughs) calling it. (laughs) And finally. So wise of you. (laughs) So wise of you. Uh, And the last headline, Maddie. Is it a (laughs) This is interesting. You might find this interesting. A Houston jury has awarded a Texas educational products company more than $9 million in a copyright lawsuit against the Houston Independent (laughs) School District. What? Jurors found that hundreds of teachers and district employees over the course of a decade illegally copied dozens of study guides created by the company DynaStudy. In some cases, teachers cropped out copyright warnings on the materials, so they and did then what, like shared every them online. In America is doing right. So this yeah lawyers for the district tried unsuccessfully to argue that teachers were protected by fair use regulations, but to no avail. Right. So I'm saying every teacher has done something like that Not, of,
1: no one. I have never seen anyone in my school district <laughs> do that That's right.
0: Well, those were some air. of the <laughs> those were some of the other interesting education stories that caught our eye this week coming up kids these days but first this episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kaufman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control and what our teachers say are their personal opinions which may not reflect the official policies of the districts and schools that they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours, giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard today, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, we'll start off with this. I don't know if you've seen that video. Uh, rapper Little Nas X led a gym full of elementary school kids in Ohio in a raucous rendition of his hit song, Old Town Road. All the kids seem to know it, as you can tell by that video. Uh, so that's what those kids are into. Uh, Maddie, what are your kids into?
1: They're they're into that song. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, though, I, that was going to be mine because I was trying to teach. Um, well, I wasn't teaching it. We were applying. Um, friendly letter writing. We're writing letters to my third graders next year um, about things they liked and didn't like. And we could not get through it because the kindergartners had earned a dance party and they were out in the hallway and they're just like these kindergartners screaming and bopping around. To that song. Yeah, doing the Orange Justice dance and all this stuff. And um, I... To my credit, I didn't give up. I wasn't like, "What? A, fine, like, go stand by the door. But it was really hard. Kids kept saying, I need to go to the bathroom, Miss B. And each time they'd open the door, it'd <laughs> be like a bunch of little kindergartners screaming, horses in the bath! <laughs> like, oh my gosh, we're never going to make it.
0: <laughs> if you watch that video, it's amazing having every single, well, Everyone not every single, but it. all most of the kids in the video on the gym floor are, are singing it. They they know it word for word. What is it about this song you think that...
1: It's really... Is, I think that... Well, by relatable. Um, I think they're really excited. I mean, there's always a song like that each right, year. Yeah. So there's that aspect of it. But also that song is pretty cool um, because it was considered a country song um, until it started charting really well. And then um, Billboard <laughs> decided that it wasn't a country song because it didn't hit all of the, like, pre um, prereqs or all of the...
0: Criteria. Thank for, you. Yeah. That's
1: the word. Um, I'm struggling today. It didn't hit all the criteria for a country song, um, which started a whole bunch of articles about Billboard being racist, which, um, shout out to the Vox podcast. Um, man, I can't even think of it. Oh, I'm failing. This is not good. It, another but podcast I to listened to— Suffice to say, that to,
0: controversy made it, it was more BS. popular.
1: Well, it was BS. It, it not hitting the criteria right. was BS. And mm-hmm. so then Billy Ray Cyrus came, um, major country star, and he collaborated with Lil Nas on that song to help it chart again. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's now considered a country song or not, but—
0: Well, the kids don't I'm care. I'm into it. I love it. It's <laughs> a great song. The kids don't care whether it's charted or not. It's uh, They love it. Um, it's got
1: a good drop. <laughs>
0: It has a good, which, which you dropped in, in the studio there. here. You
1: know, said, um, I got the horses in the back. It's great. That's the only part I know.
0: <laughs> uh, Jason, what are your kids into? He doesn't know. I'll follow the
1: song. that. <laughs> He's out of it. <laughs> He's got nothing.
3: I was gonna. I was tying it back to the first segment. Uh, according to my kids on Insta, everyone's sharing pictures oh about God. save the planet. And I thought that was so cool. I, like, I asked, I asked this kid, I'm like, science blank. I was like, What's, what are kids into today? He's like, oh, it's all about the environment, mister. Blah blah blah, Mr. Staliga. I can say that. Yeah, he's like, yeah, you he's your
1: last name from. It's the like the market. Mueller report.
3: So yeah, <laughs> blah, blah, I redacted blah. it. I redacted <laughs> it um, <laughs> <laughs> verbally. Uh, yeah. It just so related, is this like,
0: related to because Earth Day was not that long ago, but it was still a few days no, ago. No, he's just yeah. like everyone's yeah. talking
3: about the environment. There's April. all these. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, all these save the planet. A few
1: days ago, Kyle.
0: A few weeks ago, six
3: weeks. Feels like a year ago. But, yeah, so I thought that was really sweet to share. But, yeah, not getting back on a horse or anything like that. What was it?
1: I got my horses in the back.
3: Oh, there it is. But your kids are really Can't into saving the, saving the environment. Saving the environment. I course. thought that was really sweet. That is sweet. Yeah. Good for them. Maddie. Why are you saying that so pointedly? I'm,
1: I think, well, I guess I was kind of. Uh, this
0: he's segment has gone he's... off the rails. Lynn.
1: Yes.
2: What are your kids into? They're trying to earn a field day. <laughs> they the uh,
0: it? What is, the, uh, yeah, what is the, the goal that they have to?
2: Have, you know, no tardies, be in class oh, on time. Oh. They're trying to play oh. against the teachers, and the teachers are, you know, gearing up because, of course, you can't let the kids beat you. So it's just a, a whole last week of school type of thing. What is the
0: competition that they would, they would compete against the teachers in if they
2: A get, basketball game. Uh, uh, and I think there's one more thing, like an outside event.
0: Tug like of so, war. That was always my favorite field day event.
2: Why? Tug of War.
0: Because I'm a big kid. I was husky in elementary school. You were the, anch- I were you an the a anchor? F- I was an You're effective the anchor, anchor were you, for you my the
2: team. <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> <not very laughs> <was> <laughs> I Tie the, the rope around you, and that was it. <laughs> it was <laughs> my
1: Hang,
2: my time not going to shine. anywhere.
0: <laughs> yeah. Can't nobody tell. Uh, nothing. Uh, She's back there. Well, thank you to our teachers this week <laughs> Maddie Burkemper, Lynn Shipley, Jason Staliga. <laughs> It was an interesting time. Thank you. None of your kids are into ASMR.
1: I mean, I just said goodbye.
0: I don't know. I don't know. Thanks as always to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR893, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. And remember, kids.
2: Be nice to your
0: teachers. Be nice
2: to your teachers. Uh, Yeah, be nice to (laughs) your (laughs) teachers.
0: Excellent way to end.